it was war, death, famine, destruction. This happened. This happened. We're all going to die. It's like what yeah, a way to. If you're if you're the only middle class person in Yorkshire, though, you should never go on a sample of one. Uh, well, <laughs> yes, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are other of us out there. A little bit like early, a little bit like early Christians in the Roman period. You have to knock three times and know the password. I'm uh, reliably yes. informed that Barnsley has some very leafy suburbs. It has it, some very leafy suburbs. It has places like Sycamore Grove and, and Pine Avenue, but that's because they chopped all the trees down and then named them after the trees that they'd cut down. I'm not actually in Yorkshire anymore. I'm in I'm in the Northeast, which is actually the original God's own country. But unlike Yorkshiremen, we don't boast about it because we don't want anybody else to come here. So how hot is it down there at the moment? I mean, so uh, we're, we're talking summer in the middle of Portugal, aren't we? Yeah, we're 40 kilometers north of Lisbon and it's about 30 degrees. Um, it's been, it's actually until now been um, lower than normal. It's been around the low 20s, but we're just due a heat wave and they're predicting 40 degrees in some places. Yeah. Um, and the same as the UK, it's a weak heat wave all, all over Europe. But uh, it is um, a fantastic, I mean, the food's good, the, the, the friendliness is, is exceptional, the Television is much kinder. News is kinder. It's just a kinder place. That's quite Wait, depressing. Where's my passport? I'm off. Well, well, you, you, you guys should bring the podcast out here. What, you mean do broadcast from, you know, actually do Our Man in Portugal? Yeah, episode. come out to Portugal for, for a long weekend and and, uh, and broadcast from here and actually sort of see. I mean, I see the sea every single day. And you know, I don't go to the beach every single day, but I I see it. I ran to it this morning, and uh, it's. I tell you, one of the things you know, you talk talk about well-being and all that kind of stuff, and uh, and I know that this isn't the subject of this podcast, but there's a bar up the road, and we've only been here a few weeks. Of course, it's a really good bar, very lively, and as soon as they hear I'm English, but my wife's Portuguese, people always always talk to us, and more often than not, buy buy us a drink, um, and don't expect one in return. Having said that, a glass of Prosecco is only one euro, so it's not like quite the same. But the hospi hospitality and general warmth generally is is far greater. And um, and, it, and it's, it's funny, it's only when I came back to the UK to see the kids, you just realise how hectic it is and, um, and the pace of life is very different. Now, of course, it's not perfect. There's loads of, you know, nowhere is perfect. But there, in terms of just general well-being and kindness, I would say it's great in the UK. Well, I mean, what, what is it that we could do in the UK? I mean, I'm to, to be honest, I live in, at the moment, I've moved since we last spoke to one of the sleepiest places in East Kent. I mean, I uh, two days ago, we actually saw a kestrel catch something in our garden to give oh, you an wow. idea of just like how completely wild and uh you know out of the way it is um but that's i mean really, that's really odd loon because the other day i saw a dragon catch a live man in my back garden so obviously yeah, i know but, but that's, that's south 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 in the northeast for you with the mountains and the yeah, the, 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 the glaciers the and stuff it, this is rap this is rapidly being to sound like a monty python <laughs> sketch yeah. you <laughs> were looking i had a bear in my back garden yeah sorry loon go on yeah but i mean it's like if it, what could we do? What what things would the UK need to change? Because you know we're we're more than happy to talk about well-being on the pod. I mean, what 
what would you say there's one thing that people in the UK should do that would make their lives a little bit happier and kinder and gentler? Um, oh, but it's, that's not a simple question, but, because I, I really think that the news flow um, generally is one of the biggest cancers in UK society. It's, it's so aggressive. So you're surrounded by aggression wherever you look. Um, if it's not about uh, Meghan and Harry, it's about Boris Johnson, it's about the, you know, and, and if Labour going in, it'll be exactly, it'll be, it'll be about Keir Steiner. You're, you're just fed a daily appetite of aggression. Um, so I suppose the first thing you do is filter your news very, very carefully. Um, you also filter a lot of false news. I look on Facebook, all the news channels, half of them, I block because it's all fake. Um, so I, th I suppose the, qu the question, um, to answer your question, I think one should do a self-audit of what gives you negative energy and what gives you positive energy. Um, do a list. And I'm a great believer in Think With Ink. Write it down um, and look at the things that give you negative energy, which might be the news flow, might be um, you haven't tidied the, garden, uh, uh, the, the garage or whatever. And see on your own audit, what's, what, what's the low-hanging fruit that you could actually, with a little bit of effort, put right and take out of your life. Um, so go and tidy that garage. Go and apologise to mother-in-law because you've got a birthday. Um, you know, be oh, selective. <laughs> be, be selective on who you listen to and just be kind to yourself. I mean, that sounds a bit trite, but honestly, there's no magic bullet. We, we all have to take, take responsibility for our own energy and our own um, news flows and our own filters. No one's going to do it for you. I think that's it. Done. Right. Let's sort like off that, them. That's oh. it. Thanks, Jess. That's been great. Good to see you guys. Yeah, get, 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 no, bring up easy, yeah, yeah, Jess. I mean, get, get over here. But 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 seriously, um, I think that's a valid point because on this podcast, we are no strangers to throwing out the odd the odd opinion or two, and I think that um, in Britain we all kind of know what every it's a little bit like being a rower we all know what everyone should be doing in the boat and it's definitely not us it's everyone else that's upsetting the balance or the rhythm or the ratio or the catch or the timing or the whatever you know it's that person at bow or the person at five or why can't stroke actually take a proper stroke without stopping to look in the mirror halfway through to check that his hair's okay um, a, a long time ago, Kipling wrote, um, you know, what do they know of England, they who only England know. And when you've actually stepped outside of the bubble by moving to Portugal, um, so you're kind of seeing us from afar now, you're in a completely different environment with a different energy, with a different pace of life, with, with different priorities and concerns within that culture. And in Britain, we tend to have a, a rel fairly relentless diet, whether you, you read the right-wing press or the left-wing press. And it's incredibly d divisive. And I know that we now live in a world of algorithms where it's like or dislike. So everything is binary. You either like it or you don't. There are very few shades of gray now. But that um, kind of perspective that you've, that you've got or that's been helped by moving is something that when you're in the middle of it, is quite hard to grasp, but actually, you know, when you're saying take responsibility for your own energy, for your own outputs, for your own actions, we do all tend to go, well, God say, Boris Johnson, what a, you know, how did he get to prime minister? Or if you're a conservative, God, Keir Starmer, look at it. It becomes very much us and them. Whereas we're actually 
it does keep us apart rather than bring us together. But my, my point is that though, is it's like in, in rowing, your only real competition is the man in the mirror. And that is the only real, real competition in life. And the trouble is, it's the thing we call the hypnotic paradox. The mind is drawn to the different, but it comes back to the familiar. And it, it sounds great, oh, you go into another country, it sounds, oh, marvellous, got a great tan, you're getting fit. It was incredibly difficult. Um, I don't speak the language. There's a lot of administration you have to go through. Um, you've got to get used to a whole load of things. It's not like being on holiday, but on steroids. Um, uh, because we're not in the Algarve, we're in Portuguese-speaking areas in the heart of Portugal. And I felt very, very isolated at times. Um, I felt very... Um, I didn't regret it, but it was a lot harder than I thought it would be. Um, because you don't belong, you can't, you'll, you don't speak the language in the field a long time before I can learn it properly. You, you're never quite getting the nuance of things. So you feel very left out in, in so many things. I could go on and on, on about it. Um, and the temptation, of course, is to say, well, I'm missing home and go back. Um, but I, I may have 101 different flaws, but the one thing I've always tried to be honest with myself about, is, well, it's a couple of things. Is I think you've got to, particularly in, as a coach, you've got to lead by example. You've got to be the person you think others should be. And that means stretching your limits. So I try on a frequent basis to stretch do something right outside my comfort zone. So when I took up, for example, skydiving, um, I hated it at first. I mean, I've done over 200 jumps now, but I, you know, it really wasn't something I was enjoying. It's just because my girlfriend did it. Um, coming here was a huge challenge. I miss the kids a lot and all that kind of stuff. But I think, so what is the alternative? You know, actually, what is the alternative to not changing? More of the same. And that's what motivates me. It's, you know, the alternative is, well, more of the same. But so when, when all of us look in the mirror and say, well, I, honestly, I, well, I've changed. I've done things differently. I did different challenges. I climbed a mountain or I jumped out of a plane or I moved to another country or I did, or I learned to do this, that or the other. Then, you know, going back to the original question, what can we all do? We can all stop moaning and take responsibility for ourselves and challenge ourselves. I said as a coach, Every year, you've got to reinvent yourself at least 10%, maybe 20%. What was right last year will be wrong this year. And I believe that's the same philosophy in life. If you don't keep changing, particularly in my age, well, the alternative is to be not on this side of the ground, but the other side of the ground. It's not great. I, is... can't, I couldn't agree more, actually, because, I mean, it, I mean, taking it like purely back to a rowing perspective, we, we've been doing this kind of thing where I've been reviewing training programs and looking at like kind of the free training resources out there and somebody kind of like got in touch with me on Facebook and said yeah yeah but, but what's the best training program yeah, I love that. I'm in, yeah and I'm I'm inclined to say it's the next one uh, I agree but the best training one program is the one that works for you I was thinking about this and you were going to discuss this topic and they say in business the biggest motivator to release discretionary effort uh, is, a, is a clear, well-communicated strategy. Yeah? yeah. If, I, if, if I can tell you clearly where we're going and why we're doing it, that is the biggest single factor that will release discretionary effort. Well, the same is true of, of rowing. You know, if I say, right, this year we're not going to do weights, we're going to do all our work on the water and cross-training. And this is why we're going to do it. If you all believe in it, it'll work. 
Yeah. If it's yeah. if it's a actually cross training is too prone to injury, I want to do more weights. I'm going to do it. as long as it's well communicated. It's do the common uncommonly well. Do the yeah. ordinary yeah. extraordinary, and it doesn't matter. There's no there's no one way. The yeah. as 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 uh, as you said, it's the next one. As long as you're really inspired by it. And that's why I say you've got to change as a coach. You've got to reinvent yourself twenty percent every year to keep it fresh, to keep people motivated. That's the, yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to this thing that Eric Murray said. He said that the Olympic cycle is four one-year experiments in how to go faster, hmm. and is and every and you kind of get to the World Championships and you take a month off, and then you say, right what worked what didn't work what can, what can we do differently next year um and i mean that I, i've been looking at this thing that a couple of kiwi sports scientists did where they analyzed they called them rower a and rower b to anonymize them except it just happened to be these two kiwi athletes who were the best in the world at rowing and won an olympic gold medal so but and they kind of analyzed both how their training programs changed and how their training programs differed from each other. And what they kind of said is like, you know, we, we've got these models that are meant to fit. You know, we've got the polarized model and the pyramidal model and the threshold training and all this. But actually what these guys were doing, they were just like, as they changed and adapted to last year's training, they changed their own training based on their own goals and their own motivations and what they thought worked for them. Um, and so each year they were doing a different balance of training and a different way of doing things. And it clearly worked. Well, you know, you know I, I, I'm a great believer the human body needs to be surprised. So, for example, I, do you wear a watch? I mean, I wear a watch, yeah. I, and you probably can't feel it because your nerves have been habituated. Um, and if you put your watch on the other arm, it'll feel really weird for a, for a week or two, and then there you become habituated, you won't feel it anymore. And I believe that sort of simple example on physiology is true in every aspect of the human. It, bodybuilders will tell you, you have to change, I think it's every six weeks or every eight weeks, to, to shock the muscles. And it's the same with anything. You, you, you've got to surprise it, surprise yourself, keep it all awake. Uh, and that's both mentally, spiritually, physiologically, emotionally, in every way keep it awake. And that's kind of what they're saying. Um, yeah. yeah. Now, the trouble with the trouble, the trouble, the trouble, someone says, well, okay, so what, what's in it for me? Well, it's then to, you know, to sit down with your, your coaches or if you're, if you're following your own training program, um, look at the bits you love and look at the bits you don't like and think, how, you know, what could you, how could you see? I used to swear by running. When I was coaching the junior team and, and my junior athletes, I used to make, before we even picked up, before we even touched an oar, they'd run seven miles every other day for a month and, and, and do weights. So I said, you know, if you want to get fit, run. If you want to be strong, you've got to be able to clean, deadlift and bench press. Simple. Those four things, you'll be fit and strong. Nothing else. And, um, and and we always kept running. I always we do when we were right in the heart, of, you know, right in the heat of all the rowing. We'd still do a seven mile run every single week, and we'd always do one on Christmas Day because I just think it's the foundation of cardio fitness. Now most most rowers don't like running, but tough. Um, the, 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 but the, you know, to get round that, you've got to think. Well, how do runners run? Study runners. Don't run like a rower going for a run. Learn to run like a runner. 
what cadence do you use? You know, what stride length? You know, how do you strike your, your feet? Um, make it interesting, study the subject. Um, so I'm a great believer that's the base of all cardio and free weights the base of all strength. And then you build around that. But that doesn't mean it's right for everybody. I, there's one guy who um, I couldn't, his name is uh, Ben, and he, um, he got sent home from Easter trials early, and he did everything by the book. He was built like a mini Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was a sculler, and he just wasn't making the boat go faster. And we didn't have time for him to start to learn how to run, so I used to take him swimming. So three mornings a week, get up early, we'd go down to make the swimming pool, and I'd make him swim, and I banned him from weights. So here's an example where I'm saying, don't do anything I've done before, do something different. So I said, you mustn't lift weights between now and final trials, and you must come swimming three days a week. And um, uh, we kept saying, honestly, you, you could have, his swimming was so bad, you could throw your laundry in with it, and it would come out clean, you know, just put him on a fast spin. Um, but what I was trying to do is educate him to embrace change. And I was trying to educate him to embrace feeling the water differently. You know, fill it with your hands, you know, reach for the, you know, don't drag down bubbles, reach for it, really find the water and hold it all the way, like you've got little balls in your hands, trying to hold it all the way through. To just set his mind differently, he must find the catch, not, not hit the catch, you know, find it, then use it. So this is a sort of philosophy we're trying to use here. And, um, and I said to him, by the way, that's your challenge, to swim and not to lift weights until, uh, until after final trials. And by the way, you won't succeed. I came down to the gym, um, it was about four weeks later, and he had a bead of sweat on his head. I said, you've lifted weights, haven't you? Oh, it was just a couple. It was just, I said, I told you, I said you wouldn't be able to do it. It's a simple challenge and you'd failed. And he, honestly, he looked sketchy. And he said, and he never failed to print that again. But we start, anyway, long story short, from having been sent home early uh, on Easter trials, he made final trials and he went to the coop and got a silver medal. There you go. There you go. And, can I just pick up on a couple of points there, Jez and Lewin? Um, so the first thing is you made your group do this for a month before they even touched an oar. September, yeah. Yeah. So what I'm kind of thinking is Lewin's obviously surging through great training programs of our time. And to be fair to Lewin, he's probably tried all of them more than once. Would that be a fair point, Lewin? Apart from yeah, maybe... <laughs> <laughs> Apart from maybe the lightweight one where you'd have to lose at least two legs and an arm to make the weight, but um, around about that. But we to go back to the start of the conversation and the, the binary narratives that we now occupy, we live in a world where it's, you're depressed, take this or read The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris or see your counsellor or, or you want to get fit, then buy this and do this. And it's really, we live in kind of a push button click world where we expect an instant result. But actually what you're talking about is the need to identify a way forward and actually commit to it for a period of time, because it's only in a period of time that you can change the the habits that you've ingrained and ingrained new or more progressive ones would that be so so you're, you're you're actually not just looking at being innovative you're looking at sustaining that with a level of commitment to actually make the change and habituate the change yes i'm doing this um methadone training you know low heart rate stuff for the running which means i've, I've got to set a heart rate max and i i've been running for two months at a heart rate under 135 and only twice have I broken it, but I broke it deliberately, you know, just to just to 
just you know and so every single so today i did 11 minute mile pace heart average heart rate 133 uh two days ago 10 10 miles heart rate 133 average uh 11 minute mile pace and it, i used to be like nearly 13 minute mile pace when i started keeping the heart rate that low but um you know and i, I used to run at seven minute mile pace when i was younger and so it's very hard to run slow you've got to, it's it's just deadly boring but you don't get injured and it's the discipline to stick to something you've said you'll do but again i find it funny that um i and i really i'm a great advocate for just innovate and change i in um in the mid 80s i was running for tennis tradesmen and um we we did the boston marathon in an eight and uh we were going to take it seriously because so we were going to go for the record. And um, we did this thing called a glycogen rebound diet. So we trained in two fours. And as we got closer to um, uh, the Boston Marathon, uh, we had no carbohydrates. So we kept training. And by, by our final training session, we could hardly rate above 28. We could hardly carry the boats to the water. And by the time, then, then you have loads of carbs for three days, and then you go and do your marathon. And the idea is that glycogen is a, is a uh, a quick release form of energy in the body. You starve your body of, end of this, you're taking loads of carbs and suddenly your body rebounds and over and suddenly you've got loads more energy. By the way, it's all since been disproved. <laughs> but um, we uh, we did get the record and the record stood for years. Um, I can't remember how many years, it stood for a very long time. But I remember, I don't know if they still have it. There used to be a journal called Peak Performance. Does it, is it still around? Yeah, yeah. Um, I used to, you can still pick up stuff from there, yeah. I, I used to read that. I'm going back, I say, into the 80s and West of it. And there was, I was watching, reading this stuff on nutrition and training programs, all of it. And, and basically, the conclusion after years of research was your mother was right when it comes to nutrition. A balanced diet's what you want. And this has been proven in the Ironman. Um, they, they don't do this sort of, um, uh, they, 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 they do carbo load gently a few days before, but they don't go bonkers. A lot of the Ironmen are introducing fat back into their diets, you know, red meat in small quantities. Um, because it's not just the fatty bit, it's how things are digested. So start with your mother was right. Have lots of color on your on your on your plate for, for you know greens and red peppers and stuff like that. And um and listen to your body. And I think if, if there's one gift I could give anybody, it would be greater self-awareness. Because I actually firmly believe you are actually your own best coach. You know if you're overtraining. You know if you're cutting corners. You know if you didn't get enough sleep. You do know all this stuff. If you yeah. listen, if you actually listen to your own inner coach, um, you'd go an awful long way just by yourself. It's true, yes, but it's, sorry, well, it's, I was... it, yeah, it's got to be said, Jez, that you know. I have enough difficulty listening to my to external coaches, let alone my internal coach. It's actually one of my <laughs> biggest problems. That I, you know, I don't normally cut corners, but I will just grind myself into the ground. And I think the biggest one is that I tend to just gravitate to doing the things I like and I'm used to. So you know, kind of the opposite of shocking my body out of things. I tend to get into a rut. Um, well, but they, they, you should don't beat yourself up about that. You know, people say, um, get, get out of your comfort zone. And I, and I always say, why? It's called a comfort zone for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> why do I want to get uncomfortable? 
Um, you know, because you, your body's only, you're only hardwired uh, for a couple of things, you know, um, to keep well fed and warm and to reproduce, you know, that's basically it. And so if you're cold, you're uncomfortable, you get warm. If you're hungry, you eat, and then you keep the human race going. Um, and so it, there's nothing wrong with doing the things you enjoy, because number one, it'll stay motivated, and number two will be benefit. So what you've got to do is almost sort of applaud that you've got a, you know, a whole host of things you can do that you enjoy, but say, right, what few things that I might not enjoy would actually really benefit me? And even if it's just for an hour a week, what, you know, would it be meditation? Would it be um, walking? I mean, Harry Marn, um, the, the famous uh, coach, New Zealand coach, um, when he was coaching the Cambridge, you know, I knew um, I used to, then it was Nick Clary who was growing at Cambridge, um, used to make the crew go for a walk together. And I thought it was a brilliant idea. They used to just go for a walk and talk. They'd go for a long walk and they'd talk about life, the universe, everything, just like this podcast. And it's a great way to sort of express your sort of concerns, your positive things, and self-innovate. I swear some of the best coaching I used to do was when I used to go um, and have a Guinness with the lads, and we'd talk about what we're doing and how could we do it better, and we'd sort of self-innovate different things. Um, and it, it, it isn't, it, it, it's just have the courage to do some change, not everything, just some. It takes courage. Is is there not though, Jez? And, and I'm I'm asking as someone who went to Henley with a, a fractured ankle, is there not somewhat? Is there not something in the fact that that there is a certain amount of self delusion in the athletic mindset? Oh, it's just a niggle. Well, yeah, I'd, my back really is just sore, and I probably shouldn't race, or I probably shouldn't do this session. But I'll, I'll do it anyway because the, the scores are being recorded. So so how do you kind of, you know, you're talking about self-awareness and we all like to think that we, that we are self-aware and we could all probably do with working on it. But when it comes to athletes, especially when a lot of what we do is objective and goal-driven and we know now, you know, in certain programs um, that we've all been involved in, every session counts towards who makes the boat, uh, you know, at the times that, that matter. Now that in itself is a loaded sentence because the times that matter are, are whenever you get into a boat. It's not just the one race in the season. It's a little bit like if your entire life is is geared around winning an Olympic gold medal, and that's that's your happiness point. But you don't enjoy anything leading up to the medal. You've just lost ten years of your life for the one second where the medal goes on on your neck. You have to enjoy the whole process. But athletes, you know. Yes, I've got a cold, but I'm going to do my 21K anyway uh, because the scores are being recorded. I don't actually feel great going into this test. I could tell the coach and put it back until the you know the next day or until I've recovered from my niggle. How do we get around that? You talk about the man in the mirror. Obviously, the man in my mirror is gorgeous. Don't recognize him at all. Um, how do we get around that? I guess you might call it willful w willingness to fool ourselves. Um, how do you get around that? Uh, because well, we know, we know inside, but we'll still intellectualize our way out of it. And that's why not many people get gold medals. And I know you'll say, well, there's only so many to go around, but that, and that, well, that is why the standard of some crews will never go up because they, they aren't smart. They didn't think now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes 
you can get round niggles and you know you shouldn't be too precious otherwise you won't get the right training done but occasionally um particularly when it's something like a virus you shouldn't be training hard going into a virus uh post-viral syndrome etc um and the trouble with uh, rowing is it's a bit like um spartans um you know you could say to one in ten spartan to kill himself fall on your sword just to prove our courage and they would because you've got so many to get to, to replace them that you know we'll, we'll get someone else to sit in well you know that it's kind of you don't really see the crap collateral damage of that mindset people who don't go into the sport people who tried it but then gave up because they you know they thought they that, that they didn't have that delusion you know it's just self-harming basically and that's not helpful for anybody um and so you know if you if you can't manage yourself at that level you're probably putting a ceiling on your ability because one of that one of the on, on, on your progress or not your ability a ceiling on your progress one of the hardest things to ever coach or teach a very highly motivated athlete is that rest is as important as effort um, and it's it's incredibly hard to, to for people to get that but uh I tell you something that used to be very popular when I, in, in the eighties. Everyone used to keep training diaries, and I bet neither of you keep a training diary. Oh, I do. It's it sort of. It, yeah, every single session. It doesn't have very much in it at the minute because I'm still recovering from long COVID. But I, I've kept one since the Agecroft days. Lewin. Well, I've got Strava, and basically everything I do goes on there. That's I, I'm, I'm on Strava. But, I record everything on there as well. So I, I wouldn't. The problem is I don't. You know, every it sends me like an email every month saying, you know, this is your like kind of your intensity and distribution and whatever. But um, I wouldn't say I do the thing very often where I go back and say, how fast did I do that workout? How fast am I am I doing this? As you know, I'm training for the London Marathon. I record every single run and and I make notes. So don't just record it. Every single if you go onto my Strava thing, you'll see my write up on the run. Um, how, how it went, what heart rate, no, was it good, was it bad, uh, and that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I really swear by keeping a training diary. And, and how you feel, is it thumbs up, neutral, thumbs down? Um, and so to your point earlier, how do, how, you know, honestly, it, it's like having, your own, like having another coach because you, you can record stuff, you can, you can start seeing the patterns of when you perform well, when you don't perform well. Um, and again, it, it comes back to the thing I said earlier, self-awareness in your training is, is probably the biggest asset you can have. So the, so this sort of self-delusion you were talking about, record it, write it down. Don't think it, write it down. And then you'll see, it won't take long before you see the trends picking up. Had a cold, but did it anyway. Felt terrible. Um, strained my back, but did it anyway. Um, had to stop the session halfway through. Uh, hurt my ankle, uh, tried to go for a run, had to walk. But, and the, the truth, you, can, you know, the truth will eventually reveal itself. Talk to the diary enough and eventually it will tell you the truth. Then I, think my, I, I think my diary is telling me that I'm old and slow. I'm going to sack my diary. I need, I, need a more, I need a more positive diary and more positive diarist. Something like Samuel Pepys, woke up betimes and did five by six minutes. That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I've literally just found you on Strava, Jez. Uh, oh, so, so it begins, Strava you, Wars between Loon and Jez. You, are, you have done a lot of long runs. I mean, it's just like, there's one hour 50 here, one hour 56. That's genuinely very impressive. 
Um, well, I'm training for a marathon. <laughs> Um, and I, I want to enjoy it. I want to run the whole way. I'm not trying to go at any pace. And I do have a coach helping me. Uh, my, my coach is the guy who used to coach me at rowing when I was at uh, university, Tim Kirk, who is 77 and can do a three hour, three and a half hour marathon. He's Scottish, he's Scottish national champion, mind. Okay. Um, uh, but it's 77. Um, and he's, so he set my training program. Um, and he's, he, um, religiously telling me, don't worry about pace. Pace will come later. Keep the heart rate low and just do, do the frequency and the running and all that kind of stuff. So I am following a program. There's a certain yeah. amount of rowing philosophy in that, which is, you know, long, slow, steady state, build the base, build the base, build the base. The speed will come later. Is it? Or, uh, or, or is, uh, is that just me remembering that all we ever seemed to do at Agecroft was like 18 strokes a minute, apart from the stuff that I blocked out because the pain was so intense? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not wedded to that in rowing. Um, I'm training for a marathon, and from its most rowing rowing races are much much quicker than that. I, I think personally, I think club rowers do too much low intensity training, not enough high intensity. Uh, I think they, I think it puts. I do think there are two categories here: internationals and club oarsmen. I mean, of course, obviously there's an element in between, but at club level, I think the training is categorically unhealthy um i think it's boring repetitive and it puts too many people off the sport i think more emphasis should be placed on technique and short um exciting bursts of energy and you should and do a lot of cross training uh, so i think you get your fitness from your running really drumming i do believe in low rate technical work but then you know let's do three thirties and then in um uh, because I think at club level, it's more important to keep it exciting, interesting, and explosive. Because most races at club level are won within the first 400 meters anyway. Yeah, and it's, so, it's so, off the start. Exactly. So if you're really good technique and you're explosive and athletic, you're probably going to win more races than you should. If you've got a phenomenal base fitness, but you're a bit tired of the whole bloody thing, you're probably going to lose more races than you should. It's an interesting point because down at uh, Tyne United, um, we took the eight out recently, and I I don't want to put you know I, I don't want to speak for everybody in the boat, but it's certainly because they were getting ready for the the uh, Talking Tarn regatta, which is a you know a, a lovely kind of regatta up in the up in the north of England. Very short course; it's only about a, a, a thousand meters, I think. But they'd never really done starts before that that I could kind of tell. So, um, and they, the previous coach, we'd never really done much above rate eighteen. Mm. And I was just look, this is a start, so we'll take two halves, we'll do three three quarters, and then we'll basically wind up to full, and we'll just go off as fast as we can. Don't you know? Just keep the hands moving. Don't worry about anything. Let your technique take over. And afterwards, it was like, wow, that's the first time we've been above, you know, rate 32. It's like, yeah, fun, isn't it? You know, to, yeah, to, absolutely. to actually feel the boat move, to feel it surge. And we were, you know, it wasn't, you know, we're not going to win any any dressage prizes for, 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 for our neatness, but for a first kind of try or a first kind of go at it, it was just exciting. And everyone was like, wow, let's do more of that. And it's like, yeah, let's, it's good fun. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and, I, and I think that's, uh, and that's why I think club level needs to be very careful. But then again, at international level, 
um, obviously it's a different, you know, you know the, the, the level of training is just ridiculously high. So going then, if someone said to me, what would you, if you could change anything international level, what would you do? I'd say, I would publish our injury, injury record. I would literally on the website have every athlete in the team and I'd say how many hours they miss through injury. I'd absolutely, I'd name and shame myself. I would literally make it a requirement that top crews had to publish their injury record. Um, uh, because I, my, to my certain knowledge, it's far too high. Too many hours are lost through, through injury that, that, that should ever be allowed. Um, and I would, I remember when I was at, uh, on the committee of Leander, I actually proposed to them that I got, I got, um, uh, I got laughed out of court on that one. Um, but I said that we're the top club in the world. We should be think leading, we should be uh, thought leaders in injury prevention and we should publish it. Um, but uh, three other committee members came up to me quietly after and said, you're absolutely right. They didn't have the courage to stand up and, and agree with me. Is, is, oh. this because, is this because essentially um, what happens at the top level filters down to clubs? This is yes. This is successful, therefore it will be successful for us. But there's a world of difference between being an international going for an Olympic gold and a, even a very, very good club oarsman going for a Henley or a Nat Champs or whatever. Absolutely. And it's to say, look, this doesn't work necessarily work at the top. It's not It's not going to translate down. So it's, it's almost like by publishing it, you're looking to change the culture and change the way that we think about training loads. Yeah. Yeah, because at international level, very often the race is won in the last 400 metres and at club level, it's usually won in the first 400. Mm. And, and, and that's the big difference. Um, but uh, again, I come back to what I was saying to you before, though, about, you know, the hypnotic paradox. The mind is drawn to the different, but it comes back to the familiar. So, I, 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 so I, I, that's, that's, if there was one message I would like people, you know, to, to they listen to this thing. You know, actually, I must listen to that. Now, let those words chime in my head. My mind is drawn to the different, but I come back to familiar. Now, that's okay some of the time, but what would actually, what could I actually do different that I actually know would benefit me, me personally? Um, would it be weights? Would it be skipping? Would it be boxing? Would it be squash? You know, at the end of the day, think, I think outside the box. See, I think uh, essentially rowing is a slow reaction sport. You don't need super fast reactions to be a rower. Mm. But wouldn't it be good to do some fast reaction activity like badminton? Um, something that just wakes you up. It's got to be really, really quick. And sort of apply that sort of speed of reaction to your catch, taking the catch a bit quicker. Just sort of cross-fertilizing some exciting things that, you know, I'm not skillful enough at badminton, but I played a lot of squash. You know, somebody made, you know, oh, I don't like that. I'll, I'll play table tennis. You know, just think what could we do an hour of each week that would absolutely benefit us in, in, in some unusual way. And the fact that you've sprinkled some, um, some innovative fertilizer on your training, you know, when the tide comes in, all the boats go up. And the fact you're even thinking a little bit more, a bit more excitement, all your training will benefit. Mm. But how so many people will actually do nothing? Yeah. I mean, if you're going down that route, I mean, it's, it's something, you know, you, you've said in, in this pod and you said to us before is like kind of try and run like a runner swim like a swimmer not like mm. a rower going for a run mm. um i mean would it be kind of like right i'm going to give this squasher thing go would you kind of would you say go and spend an hour squash coach before you start is it or uh, is, is it just like go and have a crash um 
I, I bet you will know somebody who plays squash reasonably well. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I would actually, I wouldn't just put two people on the court and hit, say hit the ball. I would, no, I would get somebody who knows how to play squash to show you some basics. Um, because if you're on the court, you don't really know what you're doing. I mean, I remember a guy, when I, I used to play squash quite seriously. And uh, one of the best, his name's Nigel Prentice, one of the, one of the best lessons I ever had if you're familiar with the layout of the squash court, you've got the red boxes. He said, I'm going to drop this ball on the red line and I want you to do a forearm and hit it. Um, so it hits the front wall and comes back. And I want you to hit it so it goes straight. So he dropped it. It bounced on the top of the bounce. Bang, I hit it. And it didn't come straight back. It went over there. And then it went over here. And it went over there and over here. And it never went there straight. He said, now, when I drop it, you hit at the top of the bounce i want you to keep your eye on the ball and once you've hit it look up at me and so i did that hit looked up at him and the ball came straight back down the red line and that's how to hit a squash ball straight best lesson i ever had because hitting a ball straight is one of the hardest things you can do and yeah. it's the same in golf I mean, hitting a ball straight is incredibly difficult and uh because what happens is once we've hit the ball, our, our head tends to go with it for a bit and try and follow where it goes. And so we change our body position. But by staying dead on, so once, once the impact has happened, there's nothing you can do about it. Keep your head straight by looking up, it'll go straight. And see, it's things like that, little nuggets that can make all your training in any sport you do really exciting like you no know, if you go cycling what's the sort of cadence that you should use what sort of gears should you use? You know, a little bit of knowledge makes everything so much more exciting honestly it really really does are we getting into areas of of not challenging identity but maybe question it because here's here's the thing that i'm thinking loon and jess um i self-identify as a as a rower um you know even though you know I, i'm i'm recovering from long COVID and all of the rest of it if and i didn't row for a long period of time when i was in sheffield apart from the the length of the thames trip um but i've also done a lot of other different things so you know when i was in london i i i learned to box and i've done taekwondo and when i was growing up in the northeast of england i played football and cricket and tennis and that naturally led to squash um i mean when i when we were in M manchester um I used because I worked at the university. They had the university sports centre right next door on Oxford Road. I, I would book a squash court at, at lunchtime and just go and hit a ball up and down for half an hour, just because it was a great way of kind of clearing your your head. Um, I learned to skip doing boxing training, and I I personally think that anyone who can skip, including five year old little girls, will be natural rowers because there's a natural rhythm and timing to it that that feeds across the sport. As a self-identified rower, I think about everything in terms of rowing. When I go for a run, I'm thinking about, well, you know, if, if I manage to add an extra couple of minutes on this time, I'm improving my fitness. So next time I get back in the boat. Um, and we've noticed when we've been talking about Henley and Leander and various other things on, on the Twitter feed, and we're all very protective of our identity as rowers. We like being rowers. We, we like the fact that we do the training almost um self refers back into the fact that we're rowers we do lots of training therefore we are rowers and we are because we are rowers we do lots of training but actually if i look at my own sporting trajectory before i found rowing i did loads of different things 
and rowing was definitely the thing that that resonates with me the most but everything else that i've done is kind of fed into it so why do i therefore go well everything i do feeds into the rowing when i go well actually i'm just going to go and skip for half an hour or whatever or i'm going to go and hit a squash ball around for half an hour it's all part of a more rounded human being and it will ultimately benefit you in the boat i do you swim yeah because I think swimming is a great, um, if you want to learn how to row, learn how to swim. Um, you have to feel the water. You really have to feel the water. And, uh, but again, don't just send somebody to a pool and say, go, go and do lengths. Say, right, your target, 25 meter pool, is do length in 25 seconds, 25 strokes. You go and try and do it. Anyone listen, just go and try and do it. It's bloody difficult to do, to do a, um, a meter a stroke, you know, to assuming crawl and a second a meter and that is a great starting point because it feels it, it will make you make very long strokes so you probably do 35 strokes your target is a meter a stroke a meter a second and mm. i get go and try it go and try it and uh report back it's it's difficult you've got to really use every inch of the water can i can i just put in a brag here you're a proper I'm, swimmer aren't you well yeah i know but i mean it, it it's not so much that my, my my daughter can swim 25 meters in uh 25 seconds and she's nine I'm, I'm, I'm just, i was yeah, just like now, i'm now just sitting here it's like oh this is jez moore's target and then my it, daughter could do it at the age of nine i'm just right really go down to your that. go down to your rowing club and say right guys we're having an evening off we go to the pool we've got to beat my daughter and nobody will your daughters will thrash them all yeah, I mean, she, to be honest, she's like quite, you know, if, it, if there's one thing she appears to be naturally gifted at, it is swimming at the moment. Um, and she she kind of competes with kids who are three years older than her and sort of nine inches taller than her. Um, but yeah, she she does really quite nicely on that. And no, I'm, I'm just really chuffed by that. But yes, it is. Again, it is this idea. So, I mean, th this is like one of the things that's like, you know, I know, I know you're a big fan of cross training and I sort of wanted to talk to you about it. It's like, how do you cross train? And this idea that you, you don't just, oh, we're going to go for a jog. It's like, no, think about, think about, you know, running this far in this time. Think about your heart rate. Think about, um, how your feet, your right. cadence and uh, yeah. And, and are you, your body position, your head angle, your arm angle, uh, all these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and, that, and make it interesting. Make, make, give yourself targets. And yeah. I, I, think, I think that was like, you know, I, you know, what did I write here? It's like, should you cross train at high intensity or low intensity? And it's like, it seems much more like, like cross train at high interest. That you, you, you said it far better than I would say it myself, but that is absolutely the key thing. High interest, because uh, I remember coaching two guys and, and this is in the um, late eight, uh, early 90s, sorry, early 90s. And uh, UTT, low, low intensity training, really become very popular. Everyone had heart rate monitors and, and uh, this guy really wanted to do that. And the other guy really didn't. <laughs> so I said to the guy that really didn't, don't do it. I said to the guy, really, you do it. And they were both throwing in a pair, but I allowed them, both felt listened to, both felt they interested in their training, and both went on to road for Great Britain. So it is high interest is the key thing. 
you know, everything we do should survive two tests. So what? And what's in it for me? So if I'm going to run, so what? And what do I get out of it? Well, with high interest, you'll learn what you'll gain greater self-awareness. Going back to what I said earlier, you'll you'll start to be more in touch with your own physiology. You know, can you run and constantly breathe through your nose? Or are you having to breathe through your mouth? Um, try it. Go for a run and say, right, well, not breathe through my mouth. It's got to be through your nose. And that will keep your, your pace right down. And you sort of think, well, okay, so when I'm doing low, low intensity in the boat, I could apply the same, the same mentality to my own discipline. And it's, it's this, I just don't think we do enough on the mental side of sport. And it's where I think the biggest gains are still to be had. And the easiest, the, 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 the line of least resistance to do something mentally beneficial is to do something mentally interesting. And do something mentally interesting that's different as well, I think is a double whammy, a double win. Um, and that would be my, that, that, you know, that for me, that's my all star. That that's what would be what I think is absolutely the requirement at every level of rowing, club or international, is are we keeping everyone mentally engaged and not just with the rowing, but everything to do with the rowing? Yeah. We're circling back around, aren't we, to, you know, we, we came in on kind of wellness and well-being. What you're essentially talking about is being present in the moment of what you are doing and being aware of it. Because a lot of, okay, so, I, you know, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here by saying a lot of rowing and, you know, Loon's working his way through the training plans is this is the week's session, right? If I do my 21K Tuesday, Monday, my this on Tuesday, my this on Wednesday, my this on Thursday, my this on Saturday, my this on Sunday, then next July I will make Henley or Talking Tarn or whatever your kind of objective is. And we kind of go through the program and they're stepping stones towards our goals. But actually what we should be doing is, is whatever we're doing, whether it's an 18K, whether it's a run, whether it's knocking a squash ball around for half an hour, is actually being present in the moment of doing it and being fully engaged. And if we're not fully engaged mentally and physically, we're not actually maximizing our development or, or you know, even doing service to ourselves as human beings. Exactly. Uh, and um, yeah, I'm sure you've heard me say before, um, uh, you don't win gold medals, you collect them. Uh, it's my, one of my big mantras. And to be in a position where you can collect something, you have to do your winning today, you do it now. And that means being aware 24 hours a day. Um, and is everything I'm doing, because the truth is, like you said, we can say, well, well I've turned up, done the training, I've, I've slogged it out, but was I really engaged? Was I really, you know, but you think because you've done, done the hours, you've done the miles, you should get a gold medal, you should, get, you should win whatever your goal is. Um, and I just don't think that's good enough. I, I think, uh, I, I, just, I just think you're just going to shortchange yourself. And, you know, effort is not the solution to every problem. Um, and I think sort of innovation and interest is the solution to every problem. Um, and I don't mean innovation for innovation's sake, but I mean where you get this cross-fertilization of really looking forward to getting into the boat because you've done something and you want to, you want to translate that. You, you, you manage to do the one, you know, 25 meters in 25 seconds in the pool. And you want to kind of apply that efficiency that you felt with your hands. You want to apply that efficiency to your blade. You can't wait to see if you can get the same feeling of using every bit of the, of the, of the water, you know, the 110 degree arc. You use every bit of it. 
Um, and you can't wait to do that because you felt it one way, you want to feel it another way. Or you've played squash and you think, I want to see if I can bring that energy, that excitement, the striking ball into sort of my sharpness on the catch. Um, or the rhythm in my skipping, can I, can I replicate that up the slide? I just, I used to have this philosophy, and I was arguing about sometimes. Give me, an, give me eight athletes and I will beat eight rowers any day of the week. Um, and by that, I mean an athletic mentality will beat people who just slog up and down. Um, and that's, that's always what I'm looking for when I, when I, whenever I'm coaching rowing. I'm looking for athletic mentality. I want the crew of athletes, not guys who just come with their hairy backs like Neanderthals and just slog out 25K or something like that with no joy in it. Um, one, of the, one of my uh, little tricks I love to do is when people are just getting in the boat, because I stop them, just get in the boat, say, all oh, look at me, right, where's the wind direction coming from? Hardly anyone know. So you're going into a boat, and you know the direction the wind's going to affect how you row, and you don't even know if it's a headwind or tailwind or a crosswind. Yeah, and you're getting, the, you haven't even start, you know, taking your environment before you even get in the thing. Make it work from the very first stroke, not when you've oh, got a headwind now. And it's that attention to detail and obsession about every bit of the environment I'm, I'm keener on. It's, it's got to be said that, you know, when we, you know, a couple of the sort of the proper international heroes that we've talked to, that's really come over. Um, you know, particularly Drew Ginn and Eric Murray. Um, Eric Murray, I, I, I find him a, a really, really funny bloke because if you watch his Ascensi videos or something like that, he'll be doing his like 1K World Erg sprints and like his goat will wander in and will watch him and he's got like some chickens there and stuff like that. But when you actually speak to him, I don't think I've ever come across someone who is as aware of the individual detail of everything he's doing you know he and you know I, I i talked about this this thing i read about his training in the run-up to rio and how it changed it was really clear that you know he made every single decision about that how he was going to train and he made it with full knowledge after talking to this coach and this physiologist and kind of this biomechanist and why am I doing this? And, you know, I, I can't, I can't agree more that, you know, I'm, I'm just sitting here and I'm wondering, I'm looking back particularly at Agecroft and I think where we did a lot of like really long, high in, you know, high volume pieces, you know, slogging up and down the air well. And it's like, how many people were just in that boat? Just like, yeah, just one stroke after another. Just like, you know, they, they weren't actually thinking about, let, let's just find that moment where it just like sings off. Just keep looking for it. Keep changing. Keep finding something until it goes. And just looking for, yeah, here's just, something, just making it interesting. Here's something controversial. I reckon the better your technique, you have to decrease your miles. Now, I used to coach Zach Purchase, who is one of the best scholars I've ever coached. And 
because this technique was so good his shot his catch was so crisp and held on all the way that his low intensity was more harder work than yours because he every bit of his time was his body was physiologically engaged and his optimum if 20k was a bit too much 16k worked for him perfectly because he could keep that discipline up for 16k when the fatigue came in slight tiredness in the technique would come and so the next 4k were kind of wasted and so it's almost like having the discipline that we don't need to do 20 but the 16 has to be absolutely perfect and it'll be just as hard work because we're not slipping not letting any, any, any of it leak does that make sense yeah, yeah. no absolutely and it's, and it's having that sort of thing your, your reward for, for really being engaged is we'll do less miles but it'll be better quality and because that's what we actually want to achieve it's what we're also talking about here is is self-ownership yeah. and and what i'm wondering Lewin, is obviously you know we've talked to eric and and we've talked to drew and we've talked to people like hodge and, and jack beaumont um and i don't want to go into you know the difference between a british mindset and an antipodean mindset or or whatever but there's there's almost like a british thing of well and I'm not putting a word in, in Andy or Jack's mouth, but I'm looking back at our time at Agecroft. This is the training plan. We do the miles. Mileage makes medals. If we do the miles, we will therefore win. And more often than not, Dennis's crews did. Um, but when you look at Eric and, you know, you and he got really deep into it, Loon. He was remembering stuff from his prognostics and his spreadsheets, which he probably hadn't, you know, looked at for, for years. And he could pick out details about why he did this and why he did this. And when we talked to Drew and he talked about taking a hacksaw to his boat because he wanted to find the optimum run and trim at rate 36, he wasn't bothered about rate 18. It was what was going to happen in the, in the, in the race. Firstly, it's about ownership of what you do. So it's not enough to just go, well, I've done the miles. It's like every stroke within those miles or whatever you do within that block, every single individual detail counts. And you have to, rather than having it handed down by a coach, the coach says this. It's like, well, why does the coach say this? Do I agree with it? Is it working for me? Um, there's a flexibility of mindset that marks out the very, very best in as much as they're not necessary, they, how can I put this? If you win an Olympic gold medal, you have to have some kind of ego. You, 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 yeah. have to, you have to know that you're good at what you do. You have to know that you're the best in the world and you have the medals to prove it, you know, whether it's a Redgrave or a, or a Murray. But there's also, Eric talked about going out every single day to fail. To, to, there's a there's a, a level of humbleness there and a willingness to be wrong and to get it wrong to then get it right, and because we all have egos and you know club rowers you know club runners in life, or do we have to let go of what we know, which you know in many ways defines us? We're rowers, we do lots of miles. Do we have to have the the courage to let go of that and and? be prepared to go, well, you know, that went badly, but we've learned something from it, so we can then apply it to this. It's not quite, I mean, you don't want too many things to go badly. You want to feel, you want to feel successes along the way, but I, mm. I agree with the, the, you've got to be open-minded to change, open-minded to, to failure, because uh, you learn a lot more from your mistakes than you do from your, from your victories, um, uh, which I think is what you're saying. Um, but again, I, I come back to what I said at the beginning. It, it'll be the hypnotic paradox. We're drawn to the different, but we come back to the familiar. 
And that's the that's that's the biggest takeaway, I think. If, if someone said, why did you listen to podcast? So, well, actually, I really learned I should write things down. I should think with ink. I will work on my self-awareness and I'll try and be in the moment and I'm prepared to embrace change, even if sometimes it's not going to work. That would be that would be a hell of an achievement from, from a podcast. Can I, can I ask you a bit about your squash days? Do you play to a reasonable standard? Yeah, I play, when I um, my dad played, um, I think he picked it up in, in Aberdeen when he was working up there in the in the oil business. I grew up, you know, the northeast um, then was you know football, rugby, cross country in the winter, and then cricket and tennis and swimming in the summer sort of thing. Uh, so I grew up on a on a, a tennis court and then started hitting a ball around with my with my dad as a teenager on on squash courts. And it's something I've always kind of carried through. I, I really, firstly, it's it's an amazing workout and I'm, I'm quite a big chap. So I, I'm not like a little nimble um, squash player. I, you know, um, I'm not like lightning, but also there's something profoundly meditative and just, you know, shutting the door behind you, just going on a court by yourself and just, you know, knocking backhands up the line or working on your bow shot around the side or work, you know, working on your forehand drop or whatever. It's just... I am a rower, but I kind of grew up with ball sports and there's something in that hand-eye coordination and that satisfaction when it's, it's coming up, you know, it's coming out, out of the middle really nicely. Here's a, here's a, here's a, here's a thing I used to do. I used to play uh, club level. I used to play for Beaconsfield Squash Club. And um, one thing I noticed about squash players is I think it's one of the worst sports in the world for people making excuses why they're not going to do well. So if you go into any squash club, in the change room, you hear two, two players, oh, I had a bad day at work, or my car's broken down. They all, the change room is full of them making excuses as to why, they, I've never known a sport worse for it. And I found myself being drawn into the same thing. So I thought, well, I'm not going to do this. This is coming back to this sort of mental thing. So I don't know if you ever did this, but you know, um, the sinks in the change room, mm. the squash ball fits perfectly into the plug hole. So I used to run the water hot and I put the squash ball in the plug hole. So I used to have the ball warm me up already for me. Okay. And then I used to skip in the change room. Even if I had a cold, even if I felt terrible, I used to skip while my opponent was getting ready. I'd start skipping. So I, so I was, number one, I was warming up. Number two, I wasn't engaged in sort of ritual excuses thing. And number three, we went on court. The ball was already warm. Yeah. So I was warm, the ball was warm, and we got on with it. And I, I was just irritating other players so much. I inevitably won the first three or four points just because he was still stiff and he wasn't up to speed. And it was just I wasn't gonna, I was gonna just change the change the the narrative, change what's going on. Try it next time you're playing somebody. Okay. Take your skipping rope, get a warm uh run the warm tap, put the, the ball in the plug, uh, uh while you're getting ready and uh, getting changed. Try this it. Is yeah, so you've got none of that rolling the ball under your foot to try and get it moving or whacking it all the time. This, okay, is, this is a bit like, um, was it was it uh, a, te a tennis coach? Coach Andre Agassi wrote the book called Winning Ugly. First name was Brad. And he was, you know, never talk with your opponent in the locker room. If you can, if you can change in a separate locker room, do your warm up before you come out. So that even if you're, even when you're doing the, the ritual warm up of hitting and serving, you're already warm. And if you win the toss, always make them serve first because they're not ready for it. So, you know, so try and get as many free points as, as, as you can sort of thing. You're, a, you're, a, you're what I believe the kids call, um, Nowadays, you're a baller, Jez. You're you're there. You're there to get the free hoops and the easy points. 
Uh, well, I'm a, I'm a great believer of Shuho, my theory about the lazy brain. I think um, all all winners need to have that lazy brain. How, where can I get free speed in the boat? Where can I, where, you know, where, how can I make it easier for myself? Because this is a hard sport. How, where's the free stuff? Yeah. And, that, and that's why the recovery on the stroke is that's free speed. Don't scrub it off. It's not always about making the boat go faster. Make sure you do nothing to slow it down. Mm. Would be my sort of mentality. You know, effort, as I keep saying, effort's not the only tool in the toolbox. Smart is in there as well. Uh, oh, God, yeah. Effort is not the only tool in the toolbox. Aaron, can you think of anyone who needs to learn that lesson? What, besides <laughs> you and I, Lou, and besides you and I? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but, what is it like at Henley when I, when I coached crews at Henley? I always make sure that the erg, we used to warm up in the ergonometers first beforehand. And I always say, our ergonomics of Walmart has to be quite hard. Um, and I said, because you've got to be in a position where you are properly warm and ready to race. Because Henley, with so many distractions and, and people might swim across the, your bowels, boats could be maneuvered all the place, your, in, your Walmart's likely to be interrupted. So you must be in a position where if I took you from the ergo and put you, helicoptered you down to the start and put you in a boat, you could race straight away. Do not rely on the warm-up at Henley as your warm-up. If, it, if you get it, that's great, but expect it to be interrupted. Yeah. So, so, again, I see too many people relying too much on it. On it on, we couldn't warm up probably because someone was in the way. Well, you shouldn't have had to rely on it. You know, lazy brain. Think ahead. Okay, except, except also the, the erg shed in the Henley boat sheds. That's just a really great place. Yeah. It's just like you can literally sit down next to the Italian National Four. Yeah. And just be like erging away. And it's just like, yes, they're going faster than you, but you're doing exactly the same thing as them. You're just like, you're tapping away at 20 strokes a minute. And then yeah. you're going to say, stick in a burst. And they're going to stick in a burst. And it's brilliant fun. Yeah. It, it's, it is one of the best places in Regatta. So use it. Keep What's the interest up. Remember, it's not just high effort, it's high interest. Use it. Learn yeah. from it. Just to, kind of, it. just to kind of pivot slightly, Jess, did you see any of Henley Regatta this year? Did you no, watch I, was, I was in Portugal. I watched a little bit on the uh, on YouTube. On, on yes. the YouTube, right, okay. Uh, we're just kind of... Um, so last year... It was obviously a bit of a a bit of a scramble to get the regatta on. The you know the team did really well, but a lot was kind of drawn from the um, you know the surrounding areas because it's easier with lockdown to for people to get there. Um, it, it felt Lewin that it was it was a much more kind of representative regatta this year. It had a lot more international crews. The Aussies brought over some some great boats. The, there were some great racing. In, in your time, and obviously we've talked that, you know, Henley was a goal for us. And, and for some people, winning Henley is a viable goal. For other rowers, you know, getting to Henley is, 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 is as much of a result and something to be cherished too. What's your kind of take on how the regatta has evolved in the time that you've been involved in the sport to kind of where it is now? Because it's become, it's always been prestigious, but it's become almost like a mecca and we're getting more female representation. The regatta is having to expand to accommodate it. Is it is it almost a victim of its own success or its own cachet within the the, the rowing world? Oh God, 
And I, I speak as someone who's yet to put his application into, you know, Henley Stewart's and oh. Leander and will probably be denied on the grounds that A, I'm sarcastic, B, I'm Northern and C, I, you know, probably made some quip about them in the in the past that will come up in the vetting process. But do I, you I, hand, I handed in my members to Stewart's about three years ago, the year before COVID. Right. I, I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. I think uh, I think the guess has got too big. Um too commercial. Uh, I think it's lost some of its prestige um, for me. Um, that's a controversial view, I know, but um, it's it's not for me. I just I I think I remember I, I remember when it was uh, only four days um, when I when I was rowing there, and the regatta nearly went bust um, because a, a guy called Pete Coney came along and he upped the membership from like. I don't know, from 20 quid to 40 quid, and loads of old boys didn't like it. And he, and, and he um, his mandate was to give the regatta back to the rowers, um, not just the old farts. And uh, he made it cheaper to be a member if you were a rower uh, for a number of years and all sorts of things like that. And he made it absolute priority. You had to row, row there to become a member of stewards, et cetera. And, and, and the, the regatta has flourished ever since. I think it's great. Um, it's more inclusive. All the rest. I, just, I just personally think it's got too big. I, I wouldn't want to go there for, um, for six days, and I wouldn't. And I, I, it's lost something for me. Um, that's a personal view, and I'm sure there's not a rower on the planet that's going to agree with me. Um, that's what I think. Uh, to be honest, I agree with you. I I wouldn't want. I th I, th I think I probably want to go along to a Tuesday or a Wednesday and just see all kind of like all manner of crews and just like you know wait for those really well matched crews to come down probably neither of whom are going to make it much beyond thursday but i wouldn't want i don't think i'd want to be there on a friday saturday or sunday these days i like I, so like, I, I i love the qualifiers to me that I it's just absolutely fantastic i, I think it's the most underestimated aspect of henny regatta is the qualifiers it, it's just it's just mega you know seeing seeing the energy and the enthusiasm and the, and the tears that people didn't make it and the cheers of those i think that that to me is brilliant um i tell you one thing i i i would love to see and i know again it won't ever happen i'd love to see mixed dates i think four women four blokes i think it'd yes be so, i think it'd be such a great event you know it's also great you, 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 you give, you've got one gift to rowing, what would it be? I'd say make a mixed date event at end. I think Club mixed dates. Yeah, club mixed dates. Yeah. Brilliant. No. It would it'd be so good for, for, for rowing. Would, would, you, would you allow composite boats? Would, would you allow potentially two clubs then? I wouldn't just sleep over that. I, just, I would want to see four women and four men. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, I, I, I to, to be honest, I, I think that they should have uh, mixed dates at the Olympics. I do. I really do. I don't know I, why they don't. I, you know, I think it. I think it, it's a sport that lends itself to, to inclusion in a far better way than rugby or football. Making a mixed event, you're all doing exactly the same thing. You can gear the boat slightly you know, to, to, to compensate for strength differences. It would be so good. Getting... And, and you just get so many more boats. That'd be brilliant. It would just be a brilliant. I would watch that. I would I agree really, with that. 
I would, I just think it would be so good for the sport. And it would send all the right messages. It ticks all the right boxes and it would be so good for everybody. You know what, guys? I think that's a really good place to leave it. There, there we go. I think that's been a brilliant pod. Um, Jez, you've answered all the questions that I've had in a completely different way from the way I was expecting to answer ask or answer them. So I'm going to say that's been absolutely brilliant, enlightening. And th this is going to, I think this is going to be one of those pods that we're just going to keep on coming back to and say, guys, go and listen to like the second Jesmore pod where, where he's sitting in Portugal and he's got a tan. And, and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on, on that note, I better go. Thanks, guys. I love speaking to you both. I love what you're doing and keep it going. And let's, let's spread this message about mixed dates. We've got to see that, that happening. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Jess. Lovely to see you again, man. All right, guys. Take care. Bye-bye, darling.